Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Bob Thune here with my colleague, Pastor Dusty White of Cormdale Church. Without Chris Elman, Pastor of First City Church. That guy goes on a lot of vacations, man. What is that guy doing? Chris, come back to the podcast. <laughs> on Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about what everybody's been talking about for the past three weeks, which is Israel, Hamas, and biblical prophecy. We're going to talk about Israel, and uh, the danger in talking about this is it is a constantly moving situation. And so by the time you listen to this, there might be whole new things that we haven't talked about or haven't yet addressed. But since this has been going on for a few weeks now, it is something that the whole world is paying attention to. It's on the news. People Absolutely. are talking about it. It's it's the brewing humanitarian crisis of our moment. And so we want to talk about it a little bit and uh, answer some of the questions that are out there. One question is, how does this or doesn't this connect to biblical prophecy? Another question is, how do we think about the moral ethical realities of what's going on uh, in Israel? And then a, a third question is, what bearing does this have on some current day American debates and conversations? And that's really where I think there's some interesting work to be done. So I will briefly cover the first two points because I think there's other podcasts out there that probably have a lot more th- to say um, about you know the background and history of Israel and Palestine and all of that, but uh, I thought we could tackle a few obvious questions. So let me first of all summarize. Let's start with just summarizing what has gone on. Uh, on October seventh, Hamas terrorists attacked uh, Israel and killed fourteen hundred Jewish citizens. Uh, that's the most Jewish people killed in one attack since the Holocaust. Yes. That should, that should register with you. Um, that is a huge massacre and slaughter of Jewish people. And uh, it shouldn't be lost on you that that's the biggest loss of life since the Holocaust among, among Israel. And so everything that's coming across our feeds, if we, don't fa- if we fail to recognize evil when we see it, something, something needs to check. Yes. Now, most of you have probably seen some of the videos from that day. Uh, They're horrific. They're terrible. They're Mm. the killing of innocent human beings, women, children, just mindless slaughter of people, defenseless civilians. And so in response, Israel uh, has launched an attack against Gaza, which is the operating base for Hamas. There are some complicating factors here, which is that Hamas uh, is a a Palestinian organization that has control politically in Gaza, but not every Palestinian is favorable toward Hamas, and Hamas doesn't represent the views of every Palestinian. Right. But what happened on the heels of this attack was very revealing. Um, there were protests and marches all over the place. Um really revealing a bunch of anti-Semitism. There was anti-Semitism coming out of the woodwork all across the world. And perhaps you saw there were videos of people protesting in front of the Sydney Opera House in Australia uh, saying, gas the Jews. Uh, I've got a little uh, video here of a, a, a parade in Dearborn, Michigan on October 15th. This is a huge crowd of people uh, flying Palestinian flags. And I'm just going to play the audio for you here. Uh, you can hear them chant. This is a huge cr- 
crowd of people, I would say three or 400 folks walking in solidarity down a street, and here's what you can hear them saying. So you hear them saying, Palestine will never die. And then from the river to the sea, that slogan refers to the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which are the, mm. the traditional boundaries of the nation of Israel. And what the Palestinian people are saying is, from the river to the sea, the Jews should be moved out of this land. So there, this is a claim for the erasure of the state of Israel. And that's the thing that's concerning. And those kinds of sentiments have been expressed all over the place. I've seen them in yes. on college campuses and marches in London and marches in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and Sydney, Australia, and people everywhere uh, showing sort of support for the Palestinian cause. And I think as Christians, this needs to trouble us uh, because of uh, the concern for the Jewish state. Now, the next question people always ask is, well, yeah, shouldn't we be on the side of Israel because, because prophecy, yeah. because, because Bible. If you listened to our episode 441, Four Views on the Millennium, we covered the emphasis in dispensational premillennial theology on the nation state of Israel and the idea that, you know, Israel occupying the land is the precursor to the return of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. And so the next question people always want to ask is, well, of course, shouldn't we be on the side of Israel because prophecy? There's also always a geographical question in there. What's the importance of Israel geographically for Christians, right? Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer that in two ways, using the Bible. First of all, Romans 9, verse 6 it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So you have to remember that when the Bible talks about Israel or the Jewish people in light of the new covenant, it's not talking about a nation state. It's talking about the Jewish people. And it's mentioning that actually the true heirs of the promises are those who trust in Christ, whether they are Jewish or Gentile. So we have to remember that when the Bible refers to the promises God made to Israel refracted through the death and resurrection of Christ and the new covenant, that's speaking of Jewish people, but it's not speaking of the nation state of Israel as it currently exists in the Middle East. And so uh, I like to point people to Romans 11, where uh, Paul says, I am speaking to you Gentiles, Romans 11 verse 13, inasmuch then as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, 
if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I did not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So what those verses are referring to is the future conversion of many, many Jewish people as the gospel goes to the Gentiles and as then God uses that to draw in many Jewish people to the faith. And you hear that language of grafting and a root and branches, and this is a great metaphor of understanding You know, God planted this tree, starting with Abraham, and it grew. And then what happened in Jesus, the the true and and real uh, representative of the Jewish people, is that through faith in Jesus, we Gentiles got grafted into that root. But Romans 11 tells us there is a partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then many, many Israelites are going to be saved. So I believe there's to, to come in the future a, a large conversion of Jewish people to faith in Jesus. And so what this means is, yes, God still has a plan that he's working out for the salvation of Jewish people. And they are our, our brothers and sisters, uh, heirs um, beloved by God because of the covenant, as the scriptures say, but also needing to trust in Jesus and, and come to him as the true Messiah. So when the Bible talks about Israel, we need to understand it's talking about Jewish people, people of Jewish descent. That's different than what some dispensational premillennial people have an obsession with, Dusty, which is, well, I mean, you know, the nation of Israel in the Middle East, you know, that has to exist because otherwise there's no way that Jesus' millennial kingdom can get built. Right. Which is why Israel is so important in their minds geographically and why we need to go there and see it and visit it. And so I would. So, so I want listeners to hear this. The nation state of Israel is not necessarily important to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That does not mean we should not care what happens to the nation state of Israel. Right. But I'm just saying we shouldn't have this weird Bible-inflected fascination with the nation of Israel. What we should care about is this is the homeland of the Jewish people. Yeah, And it's the only modern democracy in the Middle East surrounded by a bunch of Arab nation states. And it was, I mean, just to do the history for you here, it was created in the wake of World War I and World War II as a homeland for the Jewish people, which of course it originally was. And then they were <laughs> kicked out of it through conquest over time and didn't live in that land for a long time. And so in the early 1900s, it was occupied by the Ottoman Turks, who had lived there for quite a while. And at the end of World War I, Britain began to, Britain had colonialized Palestine, and it began to say that uh, it wanted to create a homeland for the Jewish people. Uh, there were refugees, as you can imagine, from both World War I, from the communist revolution in Russia, and then after the Holocaust, refugees, Jewish people who needed to live somewhere that had fled Russia or fled Germany. And so 
the, the, the nation states of the world, or at least you might say the victorious nations of World War II, created the, land, the, the nation state of Israel. Britain pulled out of Palestine politically, and the Jewish people established the nation state of Israel at that time. So when you hear these protesters who are calling for like the liberation of Palestine, what they are envisioning is that somehow the Jewish people are colonizers. In fact, many have used that word, that this is the colonization of a land that should be Arab, that, was, that belongs to the Arab peoples, and that these Jewish people took it over after World War II and were colonizing and displacing the inhabitants who were there, who were Arab, and that therefore uh, their solution to that problem is for the Jewish state not to exist. As Christians, we should care about two things here. One is the humanitarian concerns for everyone involved, right? We want people to have places to live. We want nations to thrive. We want the Jewish people to have a homeland. We want Palestinians to be taken care of. We want there to be a lack of war and violence. And so there's complicated, the issues here are complicated. What's not complicated, I heard uh, one Jewish historian on a podcast recently say, hey, there's, there's 23 Arab nation states in the world, like 23 Muslim states. There's only one Jewish state in the entire world, and it's this, the nation of Israel. Yeah. So Ar- Arab Palestinians have a lot of places they can go. Now, they, they may prefer to live in Palestine, but it's not like they can't go and find a homeland. There right. are 23 of them. The only place that the Jews have as a homeland is the nation state of Israel. And furthermore, for the people who are like, uh, hey, this is a result of colonization, my pushback is, yeah, you just, your history isn't deep enough because actually it was colonized by the Muslim Turks too. So if, you, if you're only mm. calling, if the only colonizers you want to talk about are the nations on the backside of World War II that said, we need a homeland for the Jews, so we're going to give them this particular portion of Palestine, if that's your problem and that's what you call colonization, just go back a little further in history. You may remember that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people yeah. and then they were colonized out of it first by the Romans and then by the Turks. Uh, and, and so this is uh, there's a deep and long lasting history here in this part of the world that some people just sort of want to live in the 20th century and not take into account the full sort of history of this place. So as Christians, we need to look at this with, with a clear-eyed sense of what is our responsibility living as citizens of the world? And um, certainly coming out of the Holocaust in Germany and then Stalin's reign in Russia, where millions and millions and millions of Jewish people were exterminated, the establishment of a very small homeland for the Jewish people is an act of mercy and justice in the world. And I think we should look on that with with affirmation rather than taking the side of <laughs> the Palestinians who would say this nation state shouldn't exist. The other thing you need to know in the history is that as Britain was trying to work that out with the the Arab nations surrounding it and the Turks who had lived there for some time, the the brokering of a deal back and forth, and you see this even in modern Middle Eastern politics, the brokering of a deal back and forth where the question was, hey, how much of this land could we give to the Jewish people? How could we carve out for them a homeland here in Palestine? The Arab nation states have never accepted any proposal 
for giving some of that land to the Jewish people. So when people when people are like, well, let's have a two state solution, right? There should be a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. There are Palestinians and Jews who agree with that. The people who don't agree with that are groups like Hamas that want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and groups like Iran, like yeah. the, the more militant Muslim societies who say, actually, we don't want the state of Israel to exist. So the problem with this whole part of the world is that there, there are people who actively simply don't want the state of Israel to exist. And so the question of how can we create some kind of land for them, when the answer to that, <laughs> when you're like, hey, can I, you know, can I create a, a little section here that belongs to me and the people around you are like, no, you can't. Yeah. It's hard, hard, hard then to know, well, how can we come to a compromise? And there's no, they never have been welcomed there. Right. Even though it was carved out. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about just as an American and even have had this conversation, which is, Hey, wasn't the, wasn't the Holocaust enough? Number one. And then didn't that kind of, isn't that over? Right. And I happened to serve, uh, in the police department with another chaplain who is a Jewish rabbi. And he, ha he is always just kind of under the pile about what is happening with Jewish oppression, especially in Israel and as a rabbi goes to Israel. And so it's just, it's very sobering to know that this isn't new. This is actually, well, this is a new barbaric act right. that we have to reckon with and should sober us up. But also these, these people have been under oppression for a long time. Yeah. Now what you're going to hear, and again, I don't know what you will have heard by the time this podcast comes out, but of course Israel is retaliating in Gaza against Hamas uh, that's going to create massive displacement for non-Hamas-oriented people who are living in Gaza. And already the world community is starting to worry about that. And Israel, to its to its uh, credit, says, hey, what we're after is the extinguishing of Hamas. They just, they just murdered 1,400 of our citizens. Yeah. We have a right not just to defend ourselves against next week being attacked by terrorists, but actually to obliterate Hamas as yeah. an organization. And so that's the uh, that's the question that's on the table is sort of um, is it just for Israel to retaliate against a terrorist organization that attacked them, and if so, what are the limits of that retaliation? What should that look like? Now, the challenge when you're fighting terrorists is they use civilian as targets. They you know they hide under hospitals and schools and they tunnel. You know they're they're creative. It's not yeah. like they're out there saying, "Hey, we're a nation state. Here's our army. Feel free to fight with us, like Ukraine yeah. and Russia." So one of the books I pulled off my shelf as I thought about this is a book by Jean Bethke Elshatain, who was a professor at the University of Chicago. She's now deceased. She wrote a book back in 2003 called "Just War Against Terror." And I remembered having to read this in seminary because I was in seminary in 2001 when the 9-11 attacks happened. And so one of the ethical questions we were all wrestling with at that time is, is it, is it just, is it right for the United States to retaliate against bin Laden and his terrorist organization? And if so, what does that look like? How, yeah. do, you, how do you go to war? It, it's obvious how you go to war against another country. And there are well-established sort of conventions for warfare between standing armies. It's hard to ask, how do you go to war against people who are like hiding out in caves and, you know, trying not to be found. And it's like a, a network of little terrorist cells. They don't have a standing army. How do you go, how do you go retaliate 
and root out that kind of evil. And so Jean Besky Elshatain wrote this book applying Christian just war theory to the question of how do we uh, retaliate against, defeat, fight against, war against terrorists. And I wanted to read a few sections to our listeners because I think as we think about what's going on in the Middle East, these are important categories for us to have. And uh, I think we want to think with cogent and clear-headed reasoning about what justice looks like in a situation like this. Let me read you, first of all, Jean Bethke Elshatain's definition of what is a terrorist. Terrorists, she writes, are those who kill people they consider their objective enemy, no matter what those people may or may not have done. Terrorist and terrorism entered ordinary language to designate a specific phenomenon, killing directed against all ideological enemies indiscriminately. The word terror entered the political vocabulary of the West during the French Revolution. Those who guillotined thousands in the Place de la Concorde in Paris were pleased to speak of revolutionary terror as a form of justice. Since the era of the French Revolution, a complex, subtle, and generally accepted international language has emerged to make critical distinctions between different kinds of violent acts. Combatants are distinguished from non-combatants. A massacre is different from a battle. An ambush is different from a firefight. That's important distinction she's making there, right? I mean, a, a battle is when you're going into battle against other armed uh, soldiers. A massacre is what happened when Hamas flew into a music festival and started indiscriminately slaughtering a bunch of Jewish citizens. Yes. That's, a, that's an act of terror. And she writes, terrorism's purpose is to destroy the morale of a nation, to undercut its solidarity. Its method is the random murder of innocent people. That's a, that's a great, simple definition of terrorism. Not specific. Its goal is the random murder of innocent people. And that's what you saw Hamas do in Israel was the random murder of innocent people. And so she asks later in the book, how do you make a case for the just use of force? What qualifies as a just war? And I want to read you the class she's applying here, classic Augustinian theology. Augustine was the first who sort of reasoned through from a Christian perspective, what is a just war? And by the way, the thinking here is careful. And if you've never thought about this, I want to recommend that you read a little bit on just war theory, because it's actually really complicated to think about how, to, how is a state ethic different than a personal ethic. We all know this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, if someone asks you for your cloak or your you know tunic, give him your cloak too. If he wants you to walk with him one mile, go with him too. If he slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. Two. It's this ethic of going the extra mile, non-violence, non-retaliation. The problem is- Which would be person to person. Right. Yeah, that's an individual ethic. The problem is that doesn't work very well when you're a state. In fact, if we think about Romans 13, right, and what it means to submit to the governing authorities because God has given them the power of the sword. The, the reality is a government has to execute justice. And so the question of what is a just war, what does is, what is war in pursuit of justice look like is an important question. Here's the five categories or the five criteria of just war that go all the way back to St. Augustine. First, a just war prevents harm to the innocent 
as much as possible. Um, in fact, listen to this. Suppose one country has certain knowledge that genocide will commence on a particular date and time against a group of people in another country. The groups to be slaughtered has no means to defend itself. Within the just war tradition, the first country may be justified in coming to the aid of the targeted group and using force to interdict their would-be attackers. So what it's saying is if you know an innocent group of people is going to be attacked, it's just to preemptively keep that from happening. That's exactly what happened in Israel is a Hamas made an unprovoked attack against unarmed civilians. The group slaughtered had no means to defend itself. And so in every in every sense, that's a violation of the first principle of a just war, which is it should be avoiding the, the involvement of innocence. It should be avoiding uh, harm to the innocent as much as possible. Second, a war must be openly declared. Third, a war must be a response to a specific instance of unjust aggression. Fourth, a war must begin with the right intentions. Fifth, a war must be a last resort after other possibilities for redress and defense have been explored. And finally, a war should not be entered without a reasonable chance of success. One should not resort to violence lightly or experimentally. And it's clear that Hamas is just an evil intent. Right. And it's clear that, you know, if you ask, is Israel then within the realm of just war tradition to seek the extermination of Hamas? In every category here, I think we would have to answer yes, because they're going after particular terrorists, not civilians. Right. Uh, they are responding to an unjust and unprovoked attack that puts them in great danger. Uh, they are. They seem to have the right intentions in this, in the sense that they're not indiscriminately trying to just create violence, but they're going after a specific group. War here, in this case, is a last resort after other possibilities have been pursued. You might know the history of Gaza, but Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2007 as a, as a way of trying to say, let us just get out of here and, and leave this to the Palestinians. And so they've let Hamas rule in Gaza since 2007. And so that's been their attempt to sort of like peacefully coexist. However, when a massive terror attack kills 1,400 of your people, suddenly that looks a little different. And finally, I think the Israeli Defense Forces have a reasonable chance of success here. So the, the, the basic Protestant category of just war theory does need to be applied here as we, mm. as we sort of respond to and think about what's happening in the Middle East and what is Israel's right response to the unprovoked terrorist attack that happened on October 7th. Now, I want to get to the category I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which is how this maps onto modern American dialogue, because yeah. I, I think it's exposed some things totally in the past few weeks. The week that, or the, the few days after the attack from Hamas happened, you started to see, especially in the Ivy League universities, the most yep. woke universities in our country, these statements of support for Palestine in their fight against the oppressors. And that's how it was framed. I'm going to read to you a statement from George Washington University's Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, they posted this on Twitter. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long. And then I want to reflect on it and, and suggest that it, it reveals something yep. in modern moral dialogue 
that rightly needs to be revealed and identified by Christians. Listen to the statement from the George Washington University Students for Justice in Palestine. Here's what they wrote. GWU, Students for Justice in Palestine, stands in full support of the liberation of our homeland and our people's right to resist the violent 75-year-long colonization of our homeland by any means necessary. Over the past few days, Palestinians in Gaza have mobilized against the Zionist entity, seizing settlements imposed on our land in violation of international law. For the first time in our history, Palestinians have reclaimed land that we were ethnically cleansed from in 1948. Over 50% of Gaza's population is under 18 years old. The vast majority of them have never been outside of the colonial prison walls, have never set foot on a single inch of the land that their families were violently ethnically cleansed from. This past weekend, we witnessed them breaking free, tearing down the prison walls, and making it known to the world we will be caged no longer. These events are history in the making. They begin the mark of a new era in the struggle. Our resistance fires, fighters are defying Zionist intelligence and dispelling the illusion of the Zionist entity's invincibility. Even the backing of all the world's most powerful imperialist states cannot suppress our people whose resistance defies, defies every colonial tool weaponized against us. The Zionist entity's retaliation to our resistance has been swift and brutal. Over 600 of our people have ascended to martyrdom, and that number grows every hour. Glory to our martyrs, each and every one. They have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our liberation. May their memories continue to light the fire of resistance and guide us on the path to liberation and return. I want you to notice how many times you've heard the word liberation and colonization so far. It's not done yet. I'm going to keep reading. Decolonization, they write, is not a metaphor. It is not an abstract academic theory. It is a tangible material event in which the colonized rise up against the colonizer and reclaim control over their own lives. This right to resist is held by every colonized and oppressed people. Even the UN maintains that it is the right of any oppressed people to pursue liberation from their oppressors, including through armed resistance. In this moment, we look to the history of the liberation struggles across the world in Haiti, in Algeria, in South Africa, and beyond, colonized people rose up in arms against their oppressors, seizing power from the hands of settlers and tearing down every colonial institution and structure that materialized their oppression. We reject the distinction between civilian and militant. We reject the distinction between settler and soldier. Every Palestinian is a civilian even if they hold arms. A settler is an aggressor, a soldier, and an occupier, even if they are lounging on our occupied beaches. As the IOF calls up thousands of reserves, it is clear that all settlers are soldiers. There exists a colonizer and a colonized, an oppressed, and an oppressor. People cannot be dissociated from resistance because we are in a constant state of resistance. This struggle has been imposed on the Palestinian people. To resist is to survive, and to resist is a right. That is a statement of utter moral and ethical confusion and ridiculousness. And I want to explain why. And you hear it in that last paragraph. Every Palestinian is a civilian, even if they hold arms. A settler is an aggressor, even if they are lounging on occupied beaches. There exists only a colonizer and a colonized, an oppressed and the oppressor. One of the people I follow on X, formerly known as Twitter, said this reveals 
the paralysis of ethical discourse if all we have is the categories of oppressed and oppressor. And here's why. Because it is absolutely not true that every Palestinian is a civilian even if they hold arms and that every Israeli is a soldier even if they don't hold arms. Right. That, that flattening of the real realities here that there are combatants and there are civilians goes against just war theory. It goes against common sense. And it only exists if the category you have are colonizer, colonized. And what I want you to see is this is the, this is the ethical framework that has become very common in sort of woke American discourse is that the only categories we can speak with are oppressed and oppressor, colonizer and colonized. And what's doubly significant here is that, of course, the colonizer, the oppressor, is only Europeans or Jews. Right. Uh, what this statement flatly fails to realize is that actually, if you'd roll the clock back 500 years, the colonizer was the Turkish empire and the colonized were the Jewish people who originally lived in Palestine and were moved out. So the, I heard one, one person say, actually the whole history of the world is the history of colonization. Yeah. And so the only way you can talk about colonized and colonizer is if you're only looking at a very defined moment in history, because actually the whole history of the world is people's, attacking one another and moving into one another's land and taking over certain boundaries and warring against various other peoples. And so this is the nature of how history works. It's not pretty, but it is what happens as a result of sin and as a result of living in a fallen world. So what I think this helps us as Christians reflect on is that within the church and within Christianity, You've seen a lot of this language of colonized, colonizer, uh, oppressed, oppressor. This has become more and more the framework that a lot of people look through. And it's because of the influence of things in the academy like intersectionality and Marxism. But I think what this moment in Israel reveals is that that ethical framework is not biblical and cannot do justice to an actual situation. And if that's how you think, you end up saying really ridiculous things like every Israeli is a, <laughs> is a soldier, even if they're a civilian, and that we're in a constant state of resistance, and that the only categories are colonizer and colonized. And I hope that what this moment does is sort of help Christians recover a right and proper full or biblical ethic that says, no, actually there aren't just two categories. Right. And I think it also is an opportunity to, to clarify some things because it, it does seem more confusing in the current cultural moment than nine 11 was in nine yeah. 11. Everybody had a, a pretty similar reflex to bin Laden and ISIS. And now you have uh, at least on everybody's feeds and, and, and opinions is a, is a sense of confusion. And the reason I would argue is because the state of Israel is relatively new. And so people can look back and say, this state has only existed since 1948. And it exists because the, the European powers, quote unquote, colonized Palestine. At, at, at 
the history was much more in the rearview mirror, meaning we, right. you know, Europeans had already been on this soil for a few hundred years. And though we dispossessed Native Americans when Europeans came here, there wasn't a conflict with the Arab world. And so the bin Laden terrorists felt like very much like, hey, these people are coming from across the right. world because they hate us. They don't live right next door. In Israel, Israel's surrounded by Arab states. And so right. the, the, the conflict between Israelis and Arabs is very present tense and always has been. And so, yeah, you have a lot, you had a lot stronger sort of moral impulse, I think, on 9-11 for most Americans than in this situation because we're not living it. But but if you talk to a lot of Jewish people, it's just as clear for, they, they, they have said, hey, this is yeah. our 9-11. Like right. 1,400 of our people were just brutally slaughtered. Yeah. And that's not something we're just going to sit back and go, oh, well, that's no big deal. Like, just like America did, we're going to say, hold on, we now have to do something to defend ourselves against this threat. And so I am hopeful that the, the moral the moral calculus that this forces us to think through helps to kill some of the, the woke nonsense that's been taking root even among Christian people that tends to use language like, colonization indiscriminately and tends to apply categories of oppressed and oppressor without thinking carefully about what are we actually talking about here? What would the Bible, what categories would the Bible give us? And how would the Bible's framework of image of God, sin, and the providence of God throughout history among nation states give us a different moral calculus here? I also do think as this war continues, with everybody having a phone and and media feeds and everything like that, I do think it is wise to filter a little bit of how much you're involved with this, yes, and how much you're taking in and how you're taking it. In, I should say, yeah. Let me let me just say like how you're receiving the information, what that's doing to you, and uh, what is your capacity to be involved with this particular war, because this it is interesting that one of Hamas's things is to take these videos. They're doing everything with their phones while they're murdering these people. Yeah. And this is one of the first times that we've been able to just pull up our phone and live stream a war things. basically. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I just think it's, there's a wisdom effect or there's a wisdom layer here that we also need. Yeah. That's a good word. When you hear people use the language of decolonization, which is, is, has become very popular in the academy. It's like the new woke term is, you know, we need to, you, you hear people say like, we need to decolonize our curriculum. And what they mean by that is let's get rid of all the books written by white Europeans. There's a right impulse there of diversifying our curriculum, but sure. diversifying is a different word than decolonizing. Whenever you hear people use language of, we need to decolonize this or decolonize that. As a Christian, that should send off a little alarm in your mind that is, nope, not a biblical category. <laughs> yeah. uh, that is a Marxist category. It's built on a flat worldview that only has the categories of oppressed and oppressor. And all that turns into usually is whatever the most recent form of oppression we can look to is, that's what's under attack there. Instead of having a robust understanding of history, and a big enough understanding of human sinfulness to do justice to how there's sin on both sides and goodness on both sides. So when you hear the language of decolonization, be skeptical. That language has appeared quite a lot in 
protests around Hamas and in language about Palestinian liberation that is uh, morally flattened and does not do justice to the fullness of the biblical witness. So there may be other things you want to talk about related to the of the goings-on in Israel and Gaza. And as I said, this will be a, a constantly changing situation as we go forward through the next few weeks and months. And so if there are particular questions that this uh, podcast raises or uh, particular places you'd like us to speak in with biblical wisdom and clarity, feel free to reach out, email podcast at cdomaha.com, and we'd be happy to do what we can. Although, um, again, we are pastors, so we're not experts on the Middle East, but we are uh, we do want to bring the wisdom of the Bible to bear here. And so hopefully, as we've talked about both the biblical view of Israel in prophecy and also a biblical ethic for evaluating terrorism, that's been helpful to you in having some categories for thinking about this and then dusty your wisdom of limiting our intake and, and knowing when we just need to sort of pull back from constant barrage of images and information is helpful. The goal of this podcast, as we always say, is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. And so if you're a Christian or a church leader who's in another context, there are many of you and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, thanks for listening in. We pray this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. Uh, we always love to hear from listeners, so do reach out via email, podcast at cdomaha.com. Let us know what you'd like to talk about or any feedback you might have. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.